Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. Not too long ago, I was scrolling through LinkedIn and a post popped up talking about bad trips. And my natural reaction was, ah, there are no such thing as bad trips, only challenging journeys, which I think was probably taught to me, told to me by any number of practitioners over the past 10 years. And I clicked onto the article and had my perspective changed slightly. So I went back and I left a comment on the LinkedIn post and then I jumped in the shower and I just kept thinking and I kept thinking and I kept thinking. I said, oh, crap, like I'm starting to get it. So I went back and I posted another comment on LinkedIn. And when I was thinking about who I wanted on this season of the podcast. Dr. Erica Zelfand was one of those people. I think that this episode is a really amazing one because she has a really no nonsense approach to medicine work. And we get really detailed about some things in the work to the point where we're talking about the dosing limits within the state of Oregon and how antidepressants and dosing, uh, the, these two things might not intersect. We start off really by going pretty deep into the concept of her experience of a bad trip. And she was sharing some things today that I'm not sure she'd ever really shared in an open forum like this. We talk about harm reduction and we go into antidepressants and psychedelics. And it was a, it was a really fun conversation. Erica's energy is fantastic, uh, and I can't wait to do more work and, and talk to her again. Dr. Erica Zelfand specializes in integrative mental health, in addition to treating patients of all ages in her medical practice. She's a psychedelic therapist and ketamine provider. Dr. Z is a lead ed- educator in the country's first licensed psilocybin facilitator school, uh, innertrek.org. She is a mentor and an acclaimed international speaker. Her work focuses on bridging the gaps between mind, body, and spirit and unifying conventional and alternative modalities. She is the author of a literature review on the potential of ascorbic acid to treat opioid withdrawal and has written many articles on a variety of health topics. Dr. Zelfand is also the CEO of Right to Heal, a nonprofit committed to empowering individuals to reclaim their health. Without any further ado, I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Erica Zelfand. Erica, welcome to Psychedelic IQ. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm a little jealous right now because uh, you're in Mexico and I'm going to bring this up right now because if people happen to hear things happening and I like I can even hear like birds chirping in the background and I'm in St. Louis and I'm a little jealous. So uh, this is what we get today. Yeah. Well... There's, you know, there's a cost to doing business, 
of, of being here. The birds chirping are the price, but the cost is I live near a church and I never thought that the noisiest neighbors I would ever have in my entire life would be a church. But uh, setting off fireworks at 6 a.m. on a Saturday, if it's a holiday, is a thing here. So also just disclaim that if you hear any sudden loud booming noises, I'm okay. It's just somebody partying next door. <laughs> Uh, well, again, I'm sort of jealous in some ways, except if it yeah. was 6 a.m. Um, and I was still sleeping. So, yeah. Um, thanks so much for being here. Um, you know, to preface this a little bit, we I read an article of yours that had been posted on LinkedIn maybe a month ago, and I said, "Wow, this is a this is a perspective that I haven't heard before." And frankly, it was a perspective in upon reading the article the first time. I was like. I think it's bullshit. Like, I don't agree with this. And then I get sunk in and I said, crap, like there's something here, like something in my body tells me that there's something here. And and I really, I can't wait to hear your opinion on this because I think it's something that more people need to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll get there. Uh, For right now, maybe tell us what you do and what got you here. What is your origin story? Oh my gosh. Well, I'll try and I'll try and give you the postcard version of it. But long story short, graduated from medical school, hung a shingle, started a practice as a primary care doctor at a clinic and thought I was going to be specializing in one thing. And instead of babies full of ear infections, my practice instead was full of people with depression and anxiety and addictions and people who just had this general even if I couldn't put a clinical diagnosis on them, just this malaise picture. And I didn't have the right toolkit for supporting them. And my toolkit, just to be clear, it included more than pharmaceutical drugs. I went to one of the only still operating accredited naturopathic medical schools in the country. And so I also had this beautiful arsenal of herbs and homeopathic remedies, IV nutrients, orthomolecular nutrition. And even still, I felt like "Mm, this needs more than methylated B vitamins, what I'm looking at here. And one, I was a new business owner, so I was not going to turn these people away. But two, I also like a good challenge. I like a good puzzle. Um, And so this became an issue for me that I just wouldn't let up on, on how can I better support these patients in a deeper way than what my current toolkit allows me to access. Um, yada, 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 ayahuasca ceremony in somebody's living room in Portland, Oregon, yada, 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 messages from the medicine like, hey, you've got to share me. Um, and blah, 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 10 years later, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the medicine, the medicine and the messages. I know. Um, beautiful well how do you what's your passion today how do you help people today knowing that you came from this uh from a very westernized medical perspective how do you help people today well i i i do a a little bit of a lot uh so i still do have my medical practice it's uh definitely not the 80 hour a week beast that it was once upon a time thank goodness but um i do still have my uh a micro practice uh, where I do a lot of ketamine prescribing there. 
Um, in addition to that, I just helped start a nonprofit organization called Right to Heal. And we consult with people all over the world. And we help people get the information that their conventional healthcare providers either won't give them or can't give them because they don't know. And so there are a lot of people who say, okay, I, I heard about psychedelics on Joe Rogan. And I don't just want to jump off the deep end and, you know, buy a bag of mushrooms and eat it without knowing what the heck I'm doing. I feel like I want to talk to somebody who understands this stuff and get some guidance here. Is this even a good idea for me? Is this the right medicine? I'm on this medication. Is that going to be dangerous? And so we have a, a platform now where people all over the world can schedule to talk to a doctor who is not going to roll their eyes and tell them they're crazy if they're thinking about doing psychedelics. Um, I'm also a lead educator at Inner Trek, which is the first to be licensed uh, psilocybin facilitator training program in Oregon. I'm also adjunct at a couple other schools. Um, and so I'm training, I'm training the future army. Um, and part of that training means I have to oversee facilitate their facilitation, uh, practicum hours. And so I created a, a retreat where students could practice on each other. And then they said, you know, this model's really good. Why don't you go do this with people who aren't students? And so yada, yada, yada. Now I'm a retreat operator also. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little busy. And then somewhere in there, there's a book that needs to get written. But as soon as God puts an eighth day onto the week, I'll get right on that one. So uh, yeah, so that's a little bit of what I do <laughs> right now. No, that's beautiful. And I just, if I forget, just thank you for... Thank you for the training. I, I want to bring it up later, but uh, sciencepsychedelics.com, you're uh, training a lot of content and, and some even free content on that platform that you have created. Mm -hmm. And then the nonprofit and all of the retreat stuff. And like you're really helping people who want to serve this medicine do it in an ethical and safe way. And mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of knowledge being transferred back and forth around these practices, but there's not as nearly as much experiential training. And I really appreciate the fact that you're mm. bringing some of that. Thank you. Yeah, I, it, it seems like a lot of the voices that we hear a, a lot from right now are the researchers, which is great. We need their data, but they're not clinicians, right? They don't work directly with patients. And then we have people who want to build up retreat centers but they've actually never been a healthcare provider before, right? And then we have people who want to start schools who have never worked with actual clients. And so, which isn't to say that none of these people shouldn't be doing what they're doing, but it means we need to talk to one another, right? We, we, need, all of, we need all of the wisdom that's here. Um, and so I've, I've really appreciated kind of being the, the hub of some of these wheels in this world of, okay, I'm not a researcher, but I actually do work with patients. And I actually do work with medicine. And I also work with conventional medicine. So, you know, when I'm on these forums, and, you know, people start blasting about how what an idiot you must be if you take antidepressants, I'm gonna be like, ah! <laughs> someone who prescribes them pretty often chiming in here, you're out of line. So, um, you know, just and, and that's why I also just need to name, if there's anyone who's listening right now who has inter interacted with my name or any, any of my content online. Can you hear that, by the way, the background? 
Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Just you know, there's there's no there's no such thing as noise pollution here. It's just life. Um, <laughs> but you know, often when people meet me in person, and I I really I don't think this is a good thing, but my PR consultant says it's a great thing. When people meet me in person, they go, "Oh my gosh, you're so much nicer in person." Than- <laughs> so much sweeter than I thought you'd be. It's like, wow. But I think part of that is like, first of all, I should never post anything in the late afternoon (laughs) during that like time when I should just take a nap. But but part of it also is I I feel like I've become this industry is so much of an echo chamber. And I don't feel like we need another person saying the same thing. And what my different experiences have allowed me to do is to see the nuances of more of these situations. So I feel like in in some ways, my role has become to be the contrarian (laughs) on this in this industry, um, which is not always the most comfortable spot to be in, honestly. Um, But I'm an Aries, I kind of like it. So, (laughs) so you know, it works. You took the words right out of my mouth. You, I, I have found you and I have uh, to be a contrarian voice. But the, I know when I read something from you or anybody like that, and I have a reaction, I have reactivity to something that I read. Whether I end up believing it or not, my reactivity is, a, is an inclination that this is something that I need to pay attention to. Maybe I end up believing it or I don't believe it. But the fact that I, my hackles go up, says, huh, there's something either in them or in me that needs to be examined. And maybe that's a really good place to to pivot. You This article that you wrote, uh, I think it was, I read it on psychedelic.support. The article title was, Let's Talk About Bad Trips, Separating Difficult from Traumatic. And I actually just want to like put a pin in here where we can start from. the One of the quotes that I that I pulled out of here was when people insist a little too strongly that there's no such thing as a bad trip. If the set and setting are right, I feel uneasy. It's perhaps like asking a rape survivor. Yeah, but what were you wearing? And I think it's the beginning of that article. And I think that there are two really charged points in there, but I totally see where you're coming from. So maybe just give us some perspective on the article and like how it came to be. Well, this the article was eight years in the making, honestly. Um, I thought that I would be tarred and feathered the minute I published it, which is why it took part of why it took eight years for me to actually write it. And had I known that the amount of gratitude and personal messages of thanks that I would receive would be at least five times that of the hate mail that I received. I might not have waited quite so long to write it. But the way that the the article came to be is, I don't, I don't mention this in the article, but my first psychedelic experience uh, was harmful. I had a, a terrible experience. I took San Pedro in uh, outside of Cusco, Peru with a shaman. Um, and I had an inc- incredibly dysphoric experience. Now, was it traumatic? Uh, m- maybe I wouldn't use that strong of a word, but it was not, it was not good. <laughs> it did, it did not clearly serve me. Yada, yada, yada. Several years later, I'm, you know, do, I'm in an ayahuasca circle 
and taken ayahuasca already a couple times, had, you know, beautiful experiences, healing experiences. And then in this situation that I write about in the article, I drank the medicine. I had a powerful first night, first half of the night. I did some good forgiving, you know, old things that just, it was just time. Like, oh, Erica, when are you going to let this go? You know, and I let it go. And then drank a little bit more medicine and things just went sideways. Things just went not okay. And I am finding that I'm even nervous to talk to you about it right now because I don't want to be asked, what were you wearing? You know, or the metaphorical equivalent of that. But the situation that I was in, it was not my first time taking ayahuasca. I trusted the facilitators. I knew the people there. I liked them. I was literally sitting next to my then partner of 10 years. Um, I knew the quality of the medicine was good. Like the container was strong and I was ready and I was really willing to do my work. And I was thrown into a trip that was, it's, it's psychedelic experiences are hard to explain. I also don't want to trigger people with the, with the nuances and, and the very horrific details of what my trip included. But let's just say it was way too much, way too hard, way too fast for my nervous system to contain. It was just too much. I couldn't hold it. Um, it occurred to me, okay, if I purge, this might get better. I stuck my fingers down my throat. I dry heaved like not like I just, I actually experienced what insanity may be. I don't know. I hope to never visit that place again. But when we kind of integrated as a group and I shared the experience, people said things like, don't be angry, sister. Everybody gets the trip that they need. You know, you're going to find the lessons later, like just trust, just trust the medicine. And essentially, energetically, the way that I heard that was just like, shut up and sit down. You're harshing my story about this medicine, right? This is my religion and you don't get to spew your heresy here. And, and it, it took me finding a place where I felt like I could say whatever the hell I wanted <laughs> for me to start doing the healing work. Um, it took a lot of energy work, acupuncture, craniosacral, things like that for me to come back. And then that after that experience happened, that's when I heard about the Zendo project, which is supporting people having difficult psychedelic experiences at Burning Man and other festival environments. And having gone through that experience myself, I understood how absolutely important it is that people in that state have support. And then I started volunteering with the Zendo project. I even helped do some of their trainings as well um, when they train their facilitators. So, you know, there were some blessings that came out of it in the same way that there are blessings that come out of being raped, in the same way that there are blessings that come out of having your child die of cancer, in the same way that there are blessings that come out of getting diagnosed with MS, right? Every horrible thing does have some kind of silver lining to it, but nobody gets to shove that silver lining in my face and tell me there's no such thing as a, as a traumatic trip. And I think part of why I've gotten so like firm about that boundary was it's funny. It's like there can be like a soft boundary. And then when people disrespect it, you have to make the boundary a little stronger. And then people disrespect it. And you're like, I guess you still don't get it. Bam, stronger boundary, stronger, you know, until mm, you don't cross this line. And so I think that's why maybe in the article I come across as a bit screechy because it's been it's been eight years of being told, no, you weren't. No, that didn't happen. No, you must have done something wrong. 
for for all the guests out there, I just got the two middle fingers, which I absolutely love. <laughs> so and and also, you know, I, I just need to give a shout out to my um, my wonderful, wonderful parents who don't understand this world at all. They're Russian immigrants. I'm first generation American. Um, and my my mom, she you know, I'm, I'm a hothead. I'm an Aries. And so sometimes my mom has to reel me in. But one thing my mom often says to me is, sweetie, don't write from your wounds, write from your scars. And part of why it took me eight years to write that article was because this traumatic trip experience I had was a wound. And it wasn't until I felt like I had completed the whole arc of the experience and really integrated it and healed it which shout out to peyote. Thank you. <laughs> peyote helped me a lot that I was like, okay, this isn't a wound anymore. Now this is a scar. And now I can write from this place. And now I can talk about this topic, not from a triggered victim place, but from a survivor place. First, thanks. Uh, if this is the first time that you're sharing this in a more of a live setting like this, um, thank you for, for doing it. And I just want to honor that all of this gets to be true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, so, so you, I don't know where, maybe I, maybe I saw it from your post, but I made a comment on the original post on LinkedIn and then I walked away and I actually, I like, I hopped in the shower and I was in the shower doing some of my best thinking and I came back and I made a second comment and I actually, so I put it in the, in my notes here, the comment says, um, well, whose fault was it that she had a bad trip? Did she ask for too much? Did the curandero make her drink the second cup? And it dawned on me how quickly my my mind rushes towards judgment and fault finding. I wonder if this is part of the reason why we like to remove bad from the psychedelic lexicon as a facilitator. How can I rest in a space of best intentions and also an awareness of I just facilitated an experience that caused harm. Mm -hmm. And for me, like being in both of those places is an uncomfortable place to stay for very long. And I think that's the, that's one of the hardest parts about the idea of a bad trip, especially coming from a practitioner perspective is, well, shit, what responsibility do I have in this? And if I'm not willing to accept that responsibility, there's no way that you can have a bad trip. Mm -hmm. To me, this doesn't feel like that big of a jump because I'm a doctor. And inherently, when you take on the practice of medicine, there is this just ambient risk. I might harm. I might create harm unintentionally. I do everything I can to cross the T's and dot the I's, but someone can have that idiosyncratic allergic response or, you know... That site of, you know, where I removed a mole and sutured it up, I practiced sterile technique, it still got infected. There is just an ambient risk that comes with anything. To me, duh. But a lot of the people who are doing psychedelic facilitation, they're, it's, they're not doctors or nurses or, you know, it's, it's a bit of a bigger jump for them to, to see that. And that sometimes... Also, you know, one of the lessons out of this experience for me, first of all, I just want to say the facilitators, the people who, who carry the medicine and serve me the medicine, in my heart of hearts, I believe that they are really good at what they do. And I trust them. 
And if I were to drink ayahuasca again, I would go back to their circle. And in fact, I have. I'm, I don't, I'm not blaming them. They did a great job. And when I wasn't okay, they did a good job of taking care of me also. And one of the lessons for me here is a lesson that I think we've forgotten, but it used to literally be a bumper sticker. Shit happens. It's part of the human experience. It's part of the cost of doing business to be a human. Shit's going to happen sometimes. I'm also going to own something about myself. I have a very high level of neuroticism. And I talk about that in the article as well. There are different characteristics that make up personality. And one of those characteristics is something called neuroticism, which is essentially how negative are you? How, how, how easily does it take for you to go to the dark side, see the flaws and thing, things? I took the uh, big five personality questionnaire when I was writing the article, just because I was curious. I scored in the 86th percentile for neuroticism. So yikes. And I, and I even mention that to my partner now sometimes when we're arguing and I'm criticizing him. And I'm like, babe, I know I'm in the 86th percentile for neuroticism. Let me just take a pause here and see, is it actually fair that I'm upset with you right now? <laughs> you know, but that is a predictor for bad trip outcomes is, is being neurotic. Also, a sign of being neurotic is it really, really pisses me off when people say everything's connected. And I'm like, it patently is not. <laughs> right? Everything is delicately interwoven. No, it isn't. I had a bad trip. Shit happens. I'm neurotic. Let's move on. You know? Yeah. It, all Again, all of these things can be true. Like everything was done to the best of everybody's ability. And you had a bad trip. And to make it like to even ground it even more in some reality, you have the ability, your training, your medical training, the, your understanding of how the human body works and the processes that you had to go through to maneuver your way out of that experience, I think grounds it even more so in some medical, an ounce of medical science saying, yeah, this can happen. And I, I think that's what I really want people to hear is that even when everybody does everything right, and when we have the best intentions, harm can still be caused and we cannot, as facilitators, blame the medicine. Like we cannot put all of the responsibility, oh, well, that's just the trip that you were supposed to have and you got what you needed, maybe not what you wanted. There, We have to have some, we have to be really conscious and have some responsibility as we walk into these conversations. And the worst thing that we can do is gaslight somebody into saying like, eh, like it'll all be okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Like if I'm just thinking if, if I removed a lipoma from a patient's back and sutured it up and it got infected, I wouldn't be like, well, everybody has the response to surgery that they need. I mean, like, no, wow, we followed sterile technique. I did everything in my power to reduce the chances of this happening. Um, did you keep the bandits on? Did you use the neosporin like I told you to? Not to blame the person, but to try and figure out what the heck happened here. I'd be like, you know, sometimes it happens. And 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 I think, you know, I don't talk about my <laughs> my first my first psychedelic experience ever was a negative one. And when I asked the shaman two days later, I was like, why do you think I had such a bad time? Like it was so hard for me, and everybody else was having such a good time. He said. It's because you were walking around barefoot. 
And when you were walking around barefoot, I said, you might want to put your shoes on. And you said, no. And I was like, I smell bullshit. <laughs> you know, maybe it's, maybe shit happens. I don't know. Maybe I'm not supposed to take psychedelics because I'm neurotic. I don't know. But I've gotten more, I've gotten more healing than harm from them. So, you know, um, but yeah, I really, I really, TV, I really appreciated what you wrote, like that you even wrote, I just got out of the shower. And um, I remember that. I remember that comment and I was actually really touched by it. So thank you. Yeah. One of the things, uh, one of the things that you talk about in the article is dispelling a couple of myths and, one of those myths is there's no such thing as bad. And I think that that's something we've flittered around. And we also find it in the spiritual community. Like there's no such thing as, you know, negative doesn't exist here. Bad doesn't exist here. Everything's perfect. Anger's not allowed. Like it's all, those are all heavy emotions. So I want to hear your thoughts on that. But before we go there, I would like to know what your take is or like how much spirituality you build into your practice? My personal practice or my work with clients? Yeah, your work with clients. We can obviously come at it from a clinical perspective. We can come at it from a research perspective. But I have a sense that there is a, a deep spiritual place that you're operating from as well. There is. You know, there is a deep spiritual place that I operate from. And I don't necessarily disclose it to my clients. Because it's not about me and my spiritual practice. It's about them and their inner healer working with the medicine. And that's pretty much what I tell them is this, this is your experience. I believe that you have an inner healer. I believe that this medicine works. And the two of them are going to work together to help you heal. And I'm just here to make sure you're safe while it happens. And if you forget that you're safe, I'm here to remind you that you're safe. So what do you want? Do you want smudging? What kind of music do you want? What kind of space do you want to create? Do you like candles? Do you like incense? Do you hate incense? I, my own background is I'm Jewish. And that's part of why I'm like this. Ashkenazi. We're just wired for neurosis. But, you know, there, there is in Judaism, there's sort of this allergy. It's almost like an anaphylaxis to anything that resembles idolatry, which means worshiping idols, worshiping objects, worshiping fake gods. So if I don't get to have the singing bowl that I want during a ceremony, if I don't get to smudge before a ceremony, if I don't call in the four directions, I don't give a rip. Because honestly, I think it's performative. And I think it's for the psyche. That's not to say that's not to blast, you know, to insult other people's practices or what they or their belief systems. It's my own. My and then, you know, even like my medicine, I keep it in a plastic Tupperware bin. And my partner, who's Mexican and comes from wisdom traditions, is like, that's, we need to buy, like, a, he wanted to buy me, like, this beautiful mahogany box to keep the medicine in. I'm like, that's, I don't need that level of idolatry. But if you want to do that, you do that. <laughs> you do that. But then I have clients who, like, they need to have their Buddha statue there, and they need to have the mala, or they need to have their cross, or they need, we need to listen to gospel music. And it's ultimately... That person's doing the healing, so it's whatever their belief is, is what we go with, and that's, and that's what we roll with. My own belief, and this ties in a lot with my practice in medicine, is there is no such thing as a healer that's an external person. I don't actually even think of myself as a healer. If somebody steps on a nail, and they come to me, and they say, Dr. Zelfand, heal me, I'm going to be like, well, you're going to heal yourself, but I'm going to help. So the first thing I would do is take that rusty nail out of their foot 
So I have removed the obstacles to cure right there. I've, cl- I've cleared an obstacle. So a, l- a little bit of a, a gentle Durga <laughs> kind of energy. You just clear it out. And then, okay, we've got this wound. Then what do I do? I clean out the wound, right? Maybe some wash it, soap and water, maybe some antibiotic stuff. All that I've done there is I have created the optimal conditions for healing. But in terms of what's going to knit together that hole in the foot, I don't do that. That's the person's own inner healing capacity that does that. And that's the, the understanding of that and my very, very deep and profound reverence for that force is how I show up, whether I'm working one-on-one with a client or running a group. I know that every single person I work with has an innate wise healer that is wiser than I am and that I'm here to clear the obstacles to cure and to help promote the conditions for healing. And then I get the hell out of the way. I don't need to have a rattle. It doesn't matter what color my poncho is. It's not the Dr. Zelfan show. And I've even like had students that have come uh, to TA on my retreats before. And they've said, like, okay, the night that we have the ceremony, what should I wear? Like, do you want me to wear all white, right? I'm like, wear pajamas. Where would I? <laughs> not, not, as a, not to be disrespectful, but it's not about you. They're not here for you. You know, that is my very her, uh, heretical and offensive. You can always count on me for that. Take on how, <laughs> how I come to how I come to this medicine and this healing. But I also find what that means is that I don't get a whole lot of guru projected onto me. Uh, and when I do have clients or patients that project golden shadow on me, I name it. I'm like, you see what you're doing here, right? You're projecting golden shadow here. I'm rooting for you all the way, but I'm going to mess up because I'm a human. We keep it real. I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I think that um, there's a pl- I have a place for everything. My cosmology is big enough to believe that Cordendero sucking energy out of a body can mm-hmm. do something. And I also believe that everybody can, in fact, heal themselves. My One of the best ide- images I have for a healer is that we're just the sutures mm. in a wound. Yeah. The body can heal itself. And all we're doing is just like, we're bringing the, the skin just close enough together for the body to do whatever it needs to do. And we're just like providing a little bit of support and assistance. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And yeah, and I'm right there with you, GV. Like I, personally, after I run a retreat, I go see a Wiyadia Marakame and I get Olympia. And I, I'm like, I don't know if this works, but I just need it. I'm going to take all the protection and help I can get. And he sucks yeah. Lord knows what out of me and spits it into a tissue and looks in it. And I'm just like, keep going, keep going, bro. Like, you, you, you know, so and then like, you know, I joke about astrology, but I'm like, oh, wait, what does mine? What does my horoscope say? So I can acknowledge, I, I acknowledge, not just acknowledge, but I celebrate that there are things way beyond what I can comprehend. And I don't have to fully understand everything to respect it, to coexist with it, to celebrate it also. So I just want to be clear. I'm not, I, don't, I don't throw away everyone else's practices. I really do welcome it all. This, that was my, and that was my read on, on some of your writing is that there's a, there's a place for a lot of stuff uh, and that you can live, you can be in the world and not of the world. Mm-hmm. And you sort of have a foot in both 
you can put a foot in spirituality and you can also put a foot in really grounded, practical medical wisdom. I'm going to go back to this question of where do you like the myth of there's no such thing as bad? Like, where have we gone wrong with this idea of like ex excluding bad and anger and negativity, all the, the heavy energy yeah. from this weird world that we're living in? What's so bad about something being bad? Like, you know, and then people are like, well, who are you to judge? And I'm like, I'm the user. <laughs> I'm the one having the experience. So, you know, is there such a thing as bad Chinese food? I don't know. Is there such a thing as a bad lawyer? Is there such a thing as, you know, oh, I built a house and then it fell apart. Did I do a bad job? Maybe. I, I don't need there to be no such thing as bad the way that it seems some people like really desperately cling to their need for there to be no such thing as bad. Shit's bad sometimes. Life is hard sometimes. It doesn't all have to be beautiful. It doesn't all have to mean something. Or or we don't have to understand whether it does or doesn't all the time. Maybe this part of the human experience is sometimes things are hard and we get to say, ouch, and hopefully someone will hear us and put their hand on our shoulder. Wow. I love that idea. My, my coach calls it the shitty 50. Like 50% 50 of our life is above the fold. 50% of our life is below the fold yeah. in varying degrees. And we have like, it's all real. It's all here. We have to live in this 3D reality and avoiding it or acting like that it, do it doesn't exist is really bypassing in any number of ways that Sean Lawler is another guy that's on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we talked about psychedelic yeah. bypassing, how this is becoming oh my more and more prevalent. But but also, GV, I mean, you asking me is like, is there such a thing as good or bad? I don't know. I'm just a stupid human, like a neurotic one at that. I'm not God. And I also am in the way that everyone is. But it's like, I don't know. It's, it, part of me is like, I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and, mm. and, you know, in terms of anger, um, this has come up a bit in our in our training as well with our students. This of like all the topics that were controversial when we were teaching our first cohort, I was shocked that this was that this was the like most heated issue right here is anger. And so I I had a client who had very very severe depression and once she got in the medicine space, she understood that the depression was actually anger. She put it, the way she put it is, it's anger that has curdled into sadness. And so she actually, at the, by the end of her trip, felt very defeated and didn't actually feel like she'd moved the needle at all on the depression. But what I understood as, as her provider was, we're not treating depression here. We're treating anger. And when I say treating anger, that's even the wrong word. So what I did was I said, okay, for your integration, we're not going to meet in an office. We're not going to meet in your living room. I gave her an address and I said, I want you to meet me here. And I want you to block out three hours, which is usually integration is an hour. I cleared my whole afternoon. I was like, this might take more than three hours. might take less. We'll see. And where I told her to meet me was in a garage. And I filled the garage with bric-a-brac from Goodwill. And this was an older woman. So her, you know... She wasn't able to like do a whole lot of punching, kicking sort of thing. I gave her a baseball bat. I gave her a hammer. And I said, have at it. And this woman broke shit in a garage and yelled almost three hours. 
And she pretended that little pieces of the bric-a-brac were different people. And this, this one's my brother. You're such an idiot. You know, just getting the anger out. And this, these are all the Jews who, when I moved to this town, they wouldn't talk to me because my husband wasn't Jewish. Fuck you. You know, let's smash it all up with a hammer. And, you know, at the end of the three hours, she sits down and I said, let's get out of here. This is like hanging out in the bathroom after you've thrown up. So go outside, you know, pour some tea out of the thermos. We sit, we're drinking our dainty little tea date. She's like, you know, you know, I feel better. (laughs) And, and bringing this to some of our students, they were horrified, said, are you serious about telling a client to pretend that somebody's face is a pillow that they're punching? Are you serious that we're pretending that we're harming? And they got, woo, they got triggered, right? Mm, yeah, the, sure. No. That's not right. We can't have anger yeah. in here. You know, to the point that like some backpedaling had to happen and some apologies. And I was just like, sorry, not sorry. You sometimes need to go out of your own belief system to support a person. And I do it all the time. I don't believe that Jesus was a Messiah. Sometimes my clients do, and they need to lean into that to heal. And I go with them. And so some students were like, no, you know, that's really not good because it's a shamanic thing where you're, if you're pretending that a cop is actually a Jewish person in your community and you smash that cop, you're actually going to do harm for that person. And I'm like, that's your belief. For that woman, it was a symbol. And it wasn't that she actually wanted to kill those people. It was that she needed to move that anger, right? Um, And so something that I I tell my patients is that I'm not afraid of your anger. If you direct it towards me physically, that's where we need to reel you in. Other than that, and please don't break the property. And then I I tell my people in the medicine state, if you need to break something, Tell me and I will bring you something to break. Please don't like punch our windows in because then you'll also hurt yourself and that's expensive to replace. But I don't think there's enough room for anger in healing work. Hallelujah. Uh, I don't know many people that uh, I have. What you just said is absolutely my perspective as well. And I had the fortunate benefit when I started doing my healing work. I spent seven years in in group psychodrama. And the therapist that I was working with uh, was so skilled and had been doing it for almost 30 years, but there was never a place in my life where Mm -hmm. anger was okay. I was a kid who grew up in a tiny little town where you had to be seen and not heard. And I had to do what I was told or else there was punishment. And this was the first place where I got to scream and feel all my feelings and then like we would shake our hands at the wrist and we would start making noise and like moaning would turn into yelling and then screaming. And then the best part was a wiffle ball bat sitting right in front of me with a pillow. And I got to beat the shit out of this weekly for seven years. And today it blows my client's mind when I can sit in front of them and say, your anger mm-hmm. is welcome here. Like I want you. To share it all because I know that anger is the pathway to fear and fear is the pathway to sadness. And if we can follow that path, it it opens up a space. Like speaking of stitches, like I think that sometimes we heal from the outside without healing from Mm -hmm. the inside first. And 
when we can reopen that wound and let the wound heal from the inside out, then we everything starts to become yeah. a little more normalized. Boom. Yeah. Amen. Um, I love that you brought up psychodrama because I do quite a lot of it on my retreats. <laughs> To the, you know, kind of a, like a, and it, it pairs, I mean, it's technically shadow work, what we do, but it's heavily based in psychodrama, shadow work and non-ordinary states of consciousness just pair together so beautifully. And so we, we use it on the retreats, um, in our integration, you know, when people are in the medicine, we just let them, you know, do what they need. And we tell people if anger triggers you, leave, take breaks, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to traumatize yourself. On the, for the sake of someone else doing their work, you know, we, but also on our, on our retreats, there's always one person who, when they're in the medicine space, they get really loud. And sometimes the other guests complain and I'm like, Hey, remember I told you to bring noise canceling headphones on your backing list? I don't want to put those on. Okay, honey. Well, your options are you put on the noise canceling headphones or you witness this person doing their work, you know, and there's half, half, you know, I would say more than half the group really values it. And there's always one person who's like, rah, 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 rah. and then by the end of the retreat, they've probably had some kind of a lysis themselves. And then everyone's sort of, sort of gets it. I, I tell people a lot of times in, in group work, if that individual's anger is triggering something in you, rather than projecting your discomfort onto them saying, I wish that person would stop getting angry. Ask yourself, ask the medicine, what is it in me that is getting triggered by yeah. their anger? And how can I be more okay with that? Uh, and like, take back some of the power that you are giving to that person uh, because they're yeah. just having their experience. And at some point in time, there's probably part of their experience that you could mm-hmm. really use yeah. as well. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, part, part of me, I've noticed that as we're talking about this, part of me wants to say, and it's especially true for women. And then I'm like, no, it's especially true for men. No, it's especially true for non-binary people. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. Um, what I, what I see also specifically with men is, um, that they know that they can do harm when they're angry. Right. And, and that's when the anger comes out sideways right? That's when it's sloppy. And so, you know, there's one, one guy I'm working with right now who he gets angry and he'll like say something really mean to the wife or he'll kind of like, he'll never like be violent, but he'll like maybe throw something, get kind of bitchy to the point that the kids are like, whoa, kind of go in the other room. And I was like, what if we created a space for you to just let it rip? And he's like, no, 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 I don't want to exercise it. I was like, what if it's not exercise? What if it's exorcise? right? As opposed to like strengthening the muscles, mm, yeah. a release, a getting it out. It's like, it's like a, a wound that's just like leaking pus. Okay. What if we lanced it and drained it? You know? <laughs> so I was thinking Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like a fistula of the soul. Um, and you know, sometimes lancing and draining a wound hurts. It hurts like hell. Um, and Sometimes that is the direction of healing because having something festering and leaking and affecting your family directly and indirectly over years or decades, it hurts more. So I, I like to think of oh, how can we find a way to clean burn mm-hmm. this anger? Like how can we find a way to burn the anger so there's no residue left over? 
And if there's a way for us to do that, and obviously like damaging things, when our anger comes out in a in an action that is not suitable, like if we're hurting someone or ourselves, that's a very non-clean way to burn that mm-hmm. anger out. But there is a way. There are there are ways to clean burn away our anger. And I think that if we've never been exposed to a way to allow the anger to exist in a purely like natural way and just to express it, mm-hmm. it feels really scary. Mm-hmm. So I, to all of the people listening to this podcast, if anger scares the shit out of you, like call me, call Erica, and oh, yeah. we'll show you a way yeah. to let this This is some also a really go. good plug for, <laughs> by the way, I don't, I'm not making a dime off of this plug, for Mankind Project and for Woman Within International. Um, those are two phenomenal programs um, where they can hold it too. They can hold what comes up and out in those we- weekend intensives as well. No medicine required, you know, that's totally sober. I want to shift a little bit and we're going to go back to the bad trip and I'm going to say, okay, now uh, let's do our best to prevent mm-hmm. bad trips. Um, tell me, you do a lot of work mm-hmm. with harm reduction. So tell me in your perspective, what is harm reduction? Like if I was a three-year-old. Uh, harm reduction means how you get to have the most fun and the most learning with the lowest chance of getting hurt. So harm reduction means if you're riding your bike, you wear a helmet. You still get to have all the fun. But if something happens, you're not going to get your brains all over the sidewalk. Now, take that and let's move it into the psychedelic facilitator space. What are what are the easy steps to harm I mean, reduction? the kind of bread and butter, set and setting. So set means your mindset, the state of mind that you're in, the setting, the space that you're in. Um, spoiler alert, I think taking psychedelics at festivals and concerts is a really dicey move, um, especially for first timers. There's substance you're taking and your orientation to it. Example, you're taking LSD. Do you know that an LSD trip can last up to 14 hours? When I was volunteering at the Zendo at Burning Man, I, the vast majority of the people who came in for support were on LSD. It was hour eight or nine of their experience. And they were like, I broke my brain. This is never going to end. And I'm like, oh, honey, you've just got five more hours to go. Let me get you some juice. <laughs> so, um, and then also, you know, is this substance right for what I'm trying to accomplish here? You know, I want to get giggly and play with my friends, not ayahuasca, you know? Uh, and then the, yeah, go ahead. You said there's a, oh, I was just going to say there's a, there's a quote. Uh, and maybe you might have been just ready to say it. The, the quote that I pulled was, there's one factor of harm reduction we don't discuss enough, dose. It's possible that the second cup of ayahuasca I drank that night contained more voltage than my nervous system could handle, that it was too much, too fast, and too hard for me. Tell me about These that. medicines work differently at different dose ranges. And we are also different. Every time we take a substance... How tired am I? How safe do I feel? What's going on in my personal life? If you're someone who has a monthly period, honestly, the phase of the, the menstrual cycle can also affect things as well. Um, how deep do I really want to go right now? How fragile do I feel? 
That's why we get to regulate the dose. And this is also something that really drives me bonkers about psychedelics is when people say you can't take more later. That's absolutely not true. You can absolutely start with the dose, for example, of psilocybin mushrooms. Give it an hour. See how much you feel. If you want to go deeper, you eat more. It's okay. Uh, I worked at a retreat center, a psilocybin retreat center that didn't do boosters. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of a bummer. It's like you've got one crack to get the dose right. And then eh, it doesn't have to be that way. You can, you can always take more. You can always take a bump. You can always take a booster. You can always start with a microdose or a mini dose and then see if you want to go deeper. I think that so much of this is this rubric that individuals have in their mind that says, here's how I was taught, or here's how my teacher did it, or here's how I've seen it done. So this is the way that I'm going to do it. And there we, if we only watch what other people are doing, or if we only acknowledge what we've been taught, we lose a lot of the nuance out of the possibilities. And honestly, that's the reason for this podcast is to have somebody like you who may, you might be talking to someone who was taught you serve one amount at the beginning of a ceremony, and then you just let people write it out. And I hope that that person on this podcast says, huh, well, clearly yeah. there might be another way. It's not the way that I was taught, but it, there, yeah. there might be another have way. You, that have I you heard there's, there's this story about, about a woman makes ham and the way that she makes the ham, she buys, she buys the, the roast and she cuts the, uh, just one end off the roast and she puts it in the pan and puts it in the oven. And her daughter says, Mom, why do you cut the end off of the roast before you... Her mom was like, oh, because I, I learned from my mother. And that's the way that my mother has always made it. And that's our tradition. And then the, the daughter goes, huh. And then she goes to grandma. She says, grandma, how come when you make a roast, you cut the end off the roast before you put it in the oven? And grandma's like, oh, just because my pan isn't big enough. I have to cut the end off the roast to fit it in the pan to put it <laughs> in the oven. So I think there are certain traditions like that. It's, Especially when we are outsiders of a culture and we really want to honor, this is from a completely, not just innocent, but actually respectful stance. We really want to honor the tradition of that culture and how we work without fully understanding it. And how much of our practices are, oh, but their pan was just smaller than the pan that we have. Maybe we don't. You know, maybe maybe we we get to we get to ask why, not in a confrontational way, not in a bitchy way, not because we're challenging, but just so like, huh? Why? Why do we do it that way? Why do we do it that way? And then we'll probably be met with, oh, you Westerners, and you're needing to know why. But sometimes, you know, sometimes we'll we'll learn something and be like, oh, okay. Well, I don't want to do it that way. Okay, good. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I spoke to a Cordendero uh, a few years ago who always recommended that we wear white to the ayahuasca ceremony. And I said, like, why are we wearing white? And he goes, well, there is like kind of an esoteric reason why people wear white. But the reality is like, it's easier to see each other in a dark room when we're wearing white clothes. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Like, <laughs> that's a really good, uh, that's a really good example of me not overcomplicating yeah. the situation to say like, oh, I need to wear white so the, the clean energy can easily move through my body better. Yeah. I was like, no, it's just very practical. It's very practical, actually. It's very smart. Uh, personally, my staff, we just wear glow-in-the-dark stickers on our chest and back, but, you know, white white works really well, too. <laughs> I remember when I was in medical school, there we had a, 
a, a wonderful teacher who um, there was um, a little bit of, I don't know, I think folks had a little bit of a God complex with him. And honestly, a, a, lo a lot of us who ended up working with him had daddy issues. Thank I, I don't include myself in that statement. I have a great dad. But we we kind of looked up to him as this like demigod figure. And he would assign us in groups of two, like, okay, you two, you're going to go see Bob. Bob's going to be your patient today. And you two, Alice is going to be your patient today. And he would hand the chart for the patients. This is when we had paper charts to one of the two students. And the students thought that meant if you got handed the chart, it meant that you were leading on the appointment. And I was like, does anybody actually know this? Did the doctor actually say that this is true? And they're like, no, but, but it's clear that if he hands you the chart. And so when we we're all in the conference room, I asked him, I was like, hey, doc, just to be clear, when you hand the chart to one of us, does that mean that we're taking the lead on the case? And he was like, no, I just don't remember all of your names. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and so just, you know, bringing some levity to it also can, can be helpful. Well, I want to ask you, we're, we're getting close on time. I want to ask about antidepressants mm -hmm. and psychedelics. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start by saying we don't. Yeah. Yeah. With a little nuance, maybe let, let me, let me ask maybe a little nuance. And, and, and I, I think that maybe I'll, I'll just ask you, is it, uh, is it Okay. And does it, is it substance specific? So is it molecule specific? Is your answer going to be different Absolutely. for psilocybin yes. than it is for ayahuasca? Let's get that very clear right at, right at the onset. It is substance specific. Ayahuasca contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor or an MAOI. MAOIs combine well with just about nothing. So that one is one that I do feel strongly about. If you're on psych meds, don't do it. I also feel strongly about if you're on psych meds and you really, really want to do that ayahuasca ceremony that's coming up in two months. And Dr. Zalfan, can you please help me taper off of the Selexa that I've been on for 25 years so I can do the ayahuasca ceremony in two months? My answer is hell to the no. Bad idea. Rapid drug tapering is a bad idea. Also, what I see happening is even if people get off the drug and they feel okay at first, whether or not they take a psychedelic, four to six weeks later, they do a nosedive and they crash and they don't feel well. So getting off of a psych med is a very destabilizing process. Taking a psychedelic is a very destabilizing process. Do you really want to layer the two on top of one another? In my practice, I just want to say, I don't usually see the people who did great on their first try, right? Those aren't the people who make it. They don't make an appointment to pay me to say, hey, everything's perfect, right? So I see the people who have the struggles. And I can't even tell you how many messes I have had to clean up of people who went off of psych meds so that they could do a psychedelic and then they hugely decompensated later. And when I say I had to clean up a mess, I mean like takes a year to clean up. Sometimes, sometimes less than that, but uh, recently had a gal took 10 months just to get her stabilized to the point that she was just like, wow, well, the last 10 months were a complete waste. And I think all the benefits I got out of doing that psychedelic have completely been negated by the last 10 months. So really respecting your neurochemistry and where you're at. We have some data showing it can take the brain a full year to stabilize after getting off of a psychiatric medication. So be gentle with your precious mind and your neurochemistry. 
And maybe your depression isn't chemical in origin, but if you're on psych meds, there's a chemical piece to it now. And we, we do need to respect that. And it, and it can be balanced out, but it takes time. So ayahuasca is a heck no, not, not mixing with psychiatric meds. Um, psilocybin, we don't have a lot of data. The limited data we have suggests it's probably okay, um, in particular with the SSRI class of drugs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, by extension, probably okay with the SNRIs. And, um, you know, with those that affect norepinephrine and dopamine, probably okay as well. Um, again, we have limited data. I do have a free video on this on YouTube in which I talk about the limited data that we do have. Um, in my own work, I would say maybe 20, 25% of the people that I work with are on psychiatric medication. Um, and I've, like where someone never had an issue. Um, in fact, on this last retreat that I ran, we had quite a number of clients who were on antidepressants and I had to keep going back to check my notes because I, I, I couldn't keep track of who was on psych meds and who wasn't because that's how much it didn't matter <laughs> in terms of how much I dosed them and how profoundly well they did in their healing process. Um, sometimes people on, uh, serotonin affecting medications, they need higher doses to break through. Um, just because the way that the brain adapts to serotonin affecting psych meds is by downregulating the receptors. And so you have fewer receptors to bind the medicine. So sometimes you need higher doses. So in the case of a substance like psilocybin, which has no known lethal dose, who cares? You give them more mushrooms, big whoop, right? But then we have other substances that do have toxic thresholds. For example, MDMA. So if someone is on an antidepressant, on an SSRI antidepressant, should be very specific, on a serotonin affecting antidepressant, and they want to do MDMA, they might do just fine. Or if they get those blunted effects, and they need to take a higher dose of MDMA, well, how high are we talking about here? Right? Are we saying, okay, they need 120 milligrams instead of 100? Big whoop, no issue. Do we need 200 milligrams? That makes me a little more nervous because MDMA is neurotoxic. Other thing I say that people don't want to hear, MDMA is neurotoxic, people. So, and if you need to take a higher dose so you can break through your Lexapro ceiling, you actually could harm yourself if that dose gets too high. So that's where the dance comes in. Also with Wellbutrin, um, because it affects norepinephrine and dopamine, there's a potentiation effect. So you can actually, with that one, take less MDMA because they're going to kind of amplify one another. Now, big shout out to Ben Malcolm, the spirit pharmacist, who didn't teach me everything I know, but sure taught me a heck of a lot. But also what I know is that there's a lot that we don't know. So we're all still learning together right now in this. Ben is also a guest on this first season of Psychedelic IQ and uh, also have, has yeah, taught me amazing. a tremendous amount. So big shout out to him as well. Okay. Well, we are, uh, we're going to jump into the speed round here. So I'm going to ask uh, four questions, okay. uh, just whatever comes to the top of your head. So first, why do you do this? I do this work because my liberation is bound up with yours. What is the most important thing that this work has taught you? Healing is always the right choice. 
for someone who is new on their path, maybe is coming out of a psychedelic training program, a guiding training program, something like that, what's the best advice you would give to them? Get a mentor or several. And I guess, is there anything else that we should have asked you, but did not? How I can maintain appearing as a suave and debonair individual despite internal feelings of despair. No. Um, <laughs> one, you know, one thing we kind of, we, we sort of grazed it, but with this, with this topic of dose, um, the dose can hugely affect the therapeutic outcome, both in a harmful way and in a helpful way. And a lot of folks who are on antidepressant medications, not all of them, but some of them need higher doses in order to break through that blunting effect. So how that relates to dose is sometimes we have in our heads what a medium-sized dose is, what a high dose is, what a heroic dose is. And those numbers are kind of arbitrary. I mean, not entirely arbitrary, but somewhat arbitrary. In the sense that, you know, I have some concerns with um, setting dose limits. For example, in the state of Oregon right now, this 50 milligrams of psilocybin, roughly equivalent to 5 grams. That's kind of my starting dose for someone on antidepressants. So I'm worried about that because sometimes if somebody's in a, in a space, in the psychedelic space where they've just hit agitation or anxiety... It's like we've just woken up the nervous system enough that it's starting to get ready to do some work, but we haven't given it enough medicine that it can actually go through that threshold and do that deeper dive. And some of the most profound healing that I have seen was on 2.5 grams. So I just want to say kudos to the low dose. Personally, the most life-changing experience I ever had was on one gram, but also... I give people upwards 10 grams, 15 grams sometimes. Sometimes they really do need more medicine. And I had one, one gal recently who she needed seven. You know, we started her at four and she was in this place kind of hovering over the toilet. And she was just like, I know exactly what work needs to be done in my body. I know exactly like where I want the medicine to go and like we're talking and it's super clear and I just, I need more medicine to do this. And I gave her three more grams of a lemon tech. So that ended up being four grams, regular three grams, lemon tech, seven grams. And she healed, I'm getting goosebumps now as I'm telling you this. She healed in such a deep and profound way that she actually, and if you haven't experienced this yourself, you're going to roll your eyes. I did too, honestly, until I got more into this work. She healed an entire lineage of karma in her family line. She did deep, deep ancestral healing, not just for herself, but for all of those in her ancestral line. And she actually, and this was an individual with CPTSD also, who's really smart, really intelligent, which can harm you sometimes when we're healing in this way. And she came to me and she was like, Erica, I don't know what would have happened if you didn't give me those three more grams. And like, she was so scared that she actually teared up a bit. She was like, that dose was exactly the dose that I needed to heal. I'm really smart. I have CPTSD. I'm really good at hiding. I'm really good at justifying things. And that was the exact dose I needed to release this. And I'm worried that your clients in Oregon going above ground aren't going to be able to get that if they need it. It's like, honestly, I'm worried too. Um, 
I still think we've got a good thing going. Um, but there's, that does, that is a little sticking point for me of like, different people need different doses. It has nothing to do with their body weight also. Like tiny 90 year old, 90 year old women who weigh 85 pounds wet can eat 10 grams and feel sober. And then like you got this big hulky dude in his thirties and like you give him two grams and he's like sobbing and drooling all over himself. So individualizing medicine, um, it's important. So that's my little soapbox on dose. Beautiful. I love it. It's the perfect way to end our time today. If people want to find you online, if people want to get some training from you, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk all about it, but uh, tell them how to find you. So my website is drzelfand.com. Z-elfand. drzelfand.com. And then the new nonprofit is right, as in correct, righttoheal.com. And uh, on my website, there are also links to the various trainings I have available online, some approved for CME and CE. So that's the central hub to get all the juicy stuff. Thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure talking to you. This won't be the last time that we talk. I'm pretty sure of that. Oh, I hope not. Yeah. Thank you so much, TV. We appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks. Have a great day. And remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.